Thank you, Steve, and good morning, ladies and gentlemen. In a sleepy little West Texas town where not much happened all year, they were preparing for the event of the year, the high school play. Unfortunately, they had miscast the young man who was to play the precipitating role, and it was an inviolate rule. Once you cast the part, you couldn't change. So the coach was hung with the chase. At the critical point in the play, the young man was to go down before this delightful young woman and propose. And in the midst of the proposal, the window was to go up, the jilted suitor was to fire a gun, and the kid was to leap to his feet and shout, Good heavens, I'm shot. And that's exactly the way he said it. And they drilled him and coached him, but the kid had no histrionic ability, whatever. He just could not identify with the part. Finally, the night of the play came, and as the high school coach was going out the front door, he noticed his son's air rifle in the vestibule, and he got an idea. Now, you let me finish the story. <laughs> As expected, the young man went down on his knees before this beautiful young lady. The window went up. The jilted suitor fired the gun. And this high school coach sitting on the side with split-second accuracy and timing just nicked this kid's trousers with the air rifle. And the kid leaped to his feet, stole the show as he said, Good heavens, I am shot! Now, I suspect that's probably the sentiments of some of you at the end of this convention. I uh, attend so many conventions and frequently go home evangelically woofed. And I'm delighted to see you here this morning, and I realize that I'm speaking to the remnant. <laughs> These are those who have endured to the end and shall be saved. Words are so inadequate to convey the language of the human heart. And frankly, I'm disappointed to see this convention come to a close because I've really enjoyed myself. And I think the most exciting part is the time I've had to interact with many of you, small groups, couples, one-on-one. -on -one. My only regret sincerely, is that I did not have time to sit down with each of you. There is nothing that does more to me than exposure to laymen. Men and women like you frequently pour kerosene over a person like me and light a match. And I trust that God will somehow break 
through it to each of us. As I prayed yesterday, and let's face it realistically, we are very dull pupils. We're very slow learners. We're really very retarded in the spiritual realm. That's why we need a convention like this. You know, we need to get together and make some mid-course corrections. We need to be provoked to good works like Curb did this morning in his testimony. We need to talk around these tables and encourage one another. These are difficult days in which to live, but they're also very exciting. So thank you for inviting Jean and me, and I particularly appreciate you making it possible for my wife to come. Some of you haven't met my wife, sweetheart, and uh, that's my greatest claim to fame. Everybody invites me to bring my wife, but not too many groups agree to pay the freight. (laughs) And this is one of those rare groups that says, bring your wife, and we will make it possible. I'm grateful. One of my choice personal friends is a man with whom I serve on several boards. I serve on so many boards, I'm bored to death. This man doesn't say a whole lot. He's one of those gutsy, down-to-earth, realistic businessmen that every preacher needs in his congregation. Somebody, you know, who has a hat pin to prick his balloon periodically. Bring him down to planet Earth. This man doesn't say a whole lot. Sometimes only two or three statements in an entire board meeting. But whenever he talks, you better listen. He's going to say something significant. He has that rare gift to sit and listen and filter and integrate and then come up with a significant conclusion. And invariably, sooner or later, he will ask that penetrating question that each of you in business has to ask. What's the bottom line on this issue? You know, we've been scraping the Milky Way and we've been impressing each other with our discussion, but when you boil it down, what's rock bottom? Did you ever ask that question about your Christian life and ministry? Most of us are exposed to a great deal of exhortation Do I trust a reasonable amount of instruction? But I find that it's very easy to lose your ball in the weeds. 
And that's why this man has forced me to ask periodically, what's the bottom line? And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Bottom line Christianity. I think I found the answer. I found it in a verse of Scripture I suspect most of you in this room could quote from memory. But I want you to turn there and see something that perhaps you haven't seen. Because leaving this convention, you need to go away with some bottom line questions. And I'd like to take this verse of Scripture and reduce it to three questions that you can ask yourself every day. I would encourage you, until they become operational in your life, to have your secretary type them and put them right on the front of your desk. Or perhaps on the mirror where you shave. Or perhaps in front of the sink where you wash the dishes. On your bureau. Some prominent place. I must confess, my friends, I don't know anything in my Christian life that has acted more like a gyroscope than these three questions. I ask them at the beginning of every single day and at the close of the same day. The verse of Scripture is 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. Let me read it to you in the New International Version. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Give diligence. Do your best. Make it your aim. Ladies and gentlemen, objectives determine outcomes. You achieve that for which you aim. And I'd like to give you three things by way of objectives and put them in the form of a question so that it will provoke your thinking. The first question is this. Is the Lord well pleased? That involves a passion for a person. Paul says to this young man in the faith, I want you to make it your aim to present yourself to God as one approved. My dear Christian friends, may I remind you that it is possible to be eminently successful with men and a total failure with God. 
It is my judgment that one of the great problems in the contemporary Christian community is that we are operating on the wrong standard. We spend the bulk of our life comparing ourselves with the wrong person. We are invariably comparing ourselves with some other Christian. And the basis of the Christian life is not another Christian. It's not the Christian community. It's Jesus Christ. And our problem is the Christian community is going to pot. because we've forgotten that Jesus Christ is the standard. I am just now involved in a personal crisis with a brother who was led to Christ and discipled and greatly impacted by a man of God, greatly used of the Lord, until recently, he caved in under moral pressure. And this has so devastated my friend that he even considered bagging Christianity. After all, if this man of God collapses, what hope is there for me? You know, I happen to believe, by the way, in the process of discipleship, that every single Christian has to have someone to whom he's looking fall off that pedestal so that you learn not to focus your attention on other Christians. And I happen to believe this is going to mark the greatest growth step in this Christian's life. Because as he said to me very perceptively not long ago, I guess I, guess I was looking at the wrong person. Can I stop just long enough to give you a word of exhortation as a layman? Will you quit... Will you quit putting some of us in public ministry on a pedestal? You will do a great deal for us. You'll do a great deal for yourself. And you'll do even more for younger Christians. You see, we're putting our Christian leaders on pedestals and we're cranking that baby up. And my friend, the higher you put that guy, the further he's got to come when he comes off there. See, if you're on the ground and you fall, you don't have very far to go. Our problem is the same problem that we had in the first century, in the church of Corinth. The only difference is we changed the name. 
Then it was, I am of Paul, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Apollos. And the pious group came along and said, and we are of Christ. Paul whips in on them and slices them all down and says, no, you are a collection of infants who forget that these are merely messenger boys. And I think I have to remind myself every day, of that parable. And when you have done everything, then say, I'm an unprofitable servant. I have just done what was expected of me. You see, this is very crucial in Christian experience because it's so easy to become more concerned about what others think than about what Jesus Christ thinks. And the reason this is so deceptive is that if you take all of your cues from the Christian community, you are absolutely wiped out because the Christian community frequently doesn't know what it means to be under the control of the Spirit. They can't tell the difference between Spirit-controlled action and flesh-impelled action. The result is you go out to give your testimony, as Herb did this morning, and others have done so effectively during the convention when I've been here. And as I have heard you in a Christian businessman's luncheon, And you evaluate your whole presentation on the basis of the response you get. I can still remember how shattering it was to me one day when, when I went out to speak someplace and nobody gave me any feedback. And, and I went home and I said to Jean, you know, I guess that was a waste of time. She said, well, did you, did you teach and preach the Word? Oh, yeah, certainly. Well, then it wasn't a waste of time. Because the Word of God does not return void. And the more I analyzed it, the more I realized that I wasn't going out to minister the Word. I was going out to meet my needs. And when those needs were not met by the feedback of an audience, I was wiped out. See, it's very important for you as you leave this convention. Because I suspect some of you are going back to some very, very difficult situations. It's really wonderful to come and hear Winston talk about what's happening in Colorado Springs and somebody's down in another community and, man, the thing is going out of sight. You know, and here you go back to Goonie Land. You know, back in Gooneyland on a crowded day, you got seven. You know, and it isn't exactly what you're going to send into the magazine to say, you know, this is really where it's happening. And it's a good thing to know that your Bible says it's required of a steward that a man be found faithful not successful, not well-known, 
not with impressive figures. See, the pattern is given to us in the Gospel. You'll remember, having read the Gospels, as I am sure you have, on three different occasions, the heavens are open and we hear those remarkable words, This is my beloved Son, in whom I find all of my delight. Why is that true? You don't know. Until you get to the book of the Hebrews, And then we are let in on a secret. Then we are told that Jesus Christ, before He visited our planet, stopped on the threshold of heaven and said, Lo, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do Thy will, O God. Now we know. You see, God found all of His pleasure in the Son because the Son found all of His pleasure in doing the Father's will. And knowing and doing the Father's will is the essence of ministry. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Because you see, the servant's ears are tuned to hear those final words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I want to let you in on something. When we finally get to heaven, there are going to be many of us whose names may be household words in certain communities who are really not going to be that prominent. And there's going to be some brother or sister, who knows, they could be sitting around one of these tables, to whom Jesus Christ will say, come up higher. And then you will know what the Savior meant when he said, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. My friends, Jesus Christ is not impressed with the things that impress us. But he's deeply impressed with the heart of a man, a woman, just like you, who uses his sphere, her sphere of ministry, and there faithfully serves Jesus Christ. That's why Hebrews 11 and verse 6 ought to scorch its way right into your mind. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. That's the ultimate name of the game. Well, there's a second question. The first one, is the Lord well pleased? That involves a passion for a person. The second question, is the work well done? That involves a passion for excellence. The text puts it this way, a workman who does not need 
to be ashamed. See, that's not only the ideal of excellence, but the pursuit of excellence. Now, I suspect that all of you have heard of Michelangelo. But do you know Bertoldo? There is a running debate among art critics as to who is the greater. Michelangelo, the student, or Bertoldo, the teacher? Bertoldo was a great teacher. And great teachers know that gifted people tend to ride on their abilities rather than develop them. He watched Michelangelo as he would be piddling on this little piece of statuary, and he warned him on several occasions. And one morning, he walked into that studio and saw him fooling around on that statuary, and he went over and picked up a sledgehammer, and he beat that thing into a thousand pieces that flew all over the room. He shouted, Bah, Michelangelo, talent is cheap. Dedication is costly. You know why I know that? Because I have spent all of my life in a graduate institution in which we turn out men who are often highly qualified to be utterly useless. And you know why? It has nothing to do with ability. We determine that before they ever get in the front door. We don't turn out one in a thousand without ability. The problem is application. And I find a lot of people, particularly in a group like this, who tend to dump on themselves and say, well, you know, we just, you know, have the quality of people we need. I don't believe that. I think our problem as Christians is not ability, particularly with divine resources at our disposal. Our problem, pure and simple, is application. Many of us are like Niagara Falls without a hydroelectric plant to harness the power. Now, I've been studying this passage for a number of years, and I've asked myself this question. If he says a workman who does not need to be ashamed, what is it that will make a workman ashamed? And I'd like to share two things with you that may be helpful as you evaluate your own life. Number one, I think a workman will be ashamed because he operated without standards. He was aiming too low. You see, it's very easy to develop a penchant for the ordinary. 
As I mentioned yesterday, living in a generation marked by a mania for mediocrity, it's easy to be sucked into that trap. In fact, that's why Paul said, don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold. The head of personnel for American Airlines said to me some time ago when I asked him what's your number one problem, he said, our number one problem is finding people who are willing to serve. Nobody wants to serve. Everybody wants high wages. Everybody wants a good pension plan. Everybody wants nice vacation. All of the fringe benefits are the number one questions people in this generation ask about in inquiring for a job. When's the last time you had somebody apply for a job in your outfit that said, hey, man, all I want is an opportunity to work. Got something that'll challenge me where I can serve and pour my life into? You're liable to have a coronary. My father was a military man, and he made a great impact on my life. He introduced me to military biography. And one of my favorites was Napoleon. You can understand that being as short as I am. He was quite a guy. And one day, he discovered he had a second-rate soldier, very lazy, a disgrace to the outfit, really a washout. But to complicate matters further, he was a namesake. He was Napoleon. And so the order came across his desk for his execution the following morning. And when he saw the name Napoleon on it, he said, I'm countermanding that order. I want that young man in my office right now. So they went out and dragged the kid in. He said, what's your name? Napoleon, sir. I said, what is your name? You know, you can imagine this kid. Finally looked across the desk and said, young man, either change your name or change your behavior. You know, I've often thought of that as a Christian. So what's your name? Well, my name is Christian. Well, can you write that on what you're doing? Kind of work that you settle for in your CBMC involvement? See, I face this all the time with students out of this generation. I had a kid come in to me some time ago, and he handed a paper to me. I said, uh, thanks. Is this the best you can do? This is the end of side one. Please stop your recorder and turn the cassette over. No, I don't think it's the best I can do. They said, well, what are you handing it in to me for? Grabs that paper, you know, and goes off hotter than a pistol. Could see him down the hall, 
sharing a portion of his mind with other students that he really couldn't afford to lose. Went home, knocked himself out. About two days later, he walked into my office, threw that baby down on my desk with a smile on his face and said, All right, Prof, read that. I said, You're proud of it, aren't you? He says, Yeah, I am. I said, Great. And that's the last piece of shoddy work I want to see from you that goes under the name of Jesus Christ. If I mentioned that young man's name, everybody in this room would recognize it. Doing one of the finest pieces of work for Jesus Christ in this generation I have seen. But caught up by his society. Anything is good enough for God. But I think there's another reason why we will be ashamed. And that is because we're operating without sacrifice. Not only are we aiming too low, it's costing too little. My friends, may I remind you that the service that counts is the service that costs. You cannot get a significant ministry for Jesus Christ as a layman or as a professional in a bargain basement sale. We've been thanking God for many men that we can identify with who have a tremendous ministry for Jesus Christ. I think of some women in our community who are making incredible waves for the Savior. But you know, I've never met a man or a woman who's making a mark for Jesus Christ who isn't paying a high price tag. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is 2 Samuel 24. Read it sometime at your leisure. The children of Israel were dying like flies. David came to the priest and said, What are we going to do? He said, David, you're going to have to offer up sacrifices to the Lord. So David and his entourage goes out. And they land at the property of a man by the name of Arauna. Put yourself in Arauna's shoes. Here's the king. And he looks out the front of his tent and says, Good night, it's the king. And he goes out to greet him and says, David, what can I do for you? Well, David said, I'll tell you, I want to buy a piece of property because I want to offer up sacrifices to the Lord. And David says, you got to be kidding the king buy a piece of property from me? Don't be ridiculous. I'll give you the property. In fact, I'll give you the utensils. I'll give you everything you need. And David said, no, you won't. And in verse 24, he makes one of the most significant statements in his life. He said, neither will I offer unto the Lord my God of that which costs me Nothing. See, David was not a freeloader. He'd have a hard time in present American society. He knew that the service that counts for God 
is the service that costs. One of my favorite verses of Scripture is Colossians 3.17. Whatsoever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. I got on a plane, an American Airlines plane in Boston some time ago. For those of you who fly, you can identify with this problem. It was a disaster flight. You know, it's one of those flights that begins bad and gets worse. Usually starts with that intriguing announcement, ladies and gentlemen, we regret that there will be a slight delay. But in 20 minutes, we will inform you. And an hour and a half later, we were informed that it would be just a little delay. Six hours later, we took off. This was a Friday night. It was filled with businessmen, nonstop flight to Dallas. I mean, they were hotter than a collection of hornets. And you know the world's approach to this. What do you do when you're in a rhubarb like that? Pour the liquor to them. So, man, they were offering drinks like it was going out of style. But with all of the liquor, they still had a lot of hot customers and particularly the guy sitting across the aisle from me. I mean, he had ulcers on his ulcer. And all those guys, I tell you, it's the sorriest outfit I ever... Every time this one stewardess had come down, I tell you, I don't know how you can work for a puny outfit like that. Dear gal, look him straight in the eye and smile and say, I'm awfully sorry, sir, but we're going to try to make your flight to Dallas as pleasant as possible. <laughs> Next time she'd come down, well, you know, flying as much as I do. I'm an admiral for American Airlines, this frequent traveler stuff. So I'm looking for people that serve. Whenever I find somebody, I get their name right to the company. So I went back to the galley and I said, hey, gal, I'd just like you to know I'm an admiral with American and fly a great deal. And I'm, I'm so impressed with the way you've handled a very, very difficult situation. And I'd just like you to know that I'm very grateful, and I'd like, if you'd give me your name, to send it into the company. And she smiled and said, well, thank you very much, sir, but I really don't work for American Airlines. You know, I thought, what? <laughs> no, what flight am I on? And she jarred me as she said, I work for Jesus Christ. And after I picked myself up off the floor, we sat down and had the most delightful conversation. Here's a gal who had just come to Jesus Christ about a year and a half before that. She led her husband to Christ. And she told me every day... He drives her to work, drops her off at the airport in Boston, and before she gets out, they bow in a word of prayer to ask that God will give them an opportunity to serve him on this flight. Just think what would happen if all across America we had a group of people like that.
serving Jesus Christ with standards, with sacrifice. The third and final question that the Spirit of God gives us in this text is the question, is the word well used? That calls for a passion for truth. And Paul says, one who correctly handles the word of truth. What's that involve? Well, let me suggest three things at least, that come from the context. First of all, it involves knowing the truth. I hope you have that as an objective. Some of you have shared with me that you do not come from churches where the Word of God is consistently taught. I appreciate that problem. I hope you are doing to supplement your lack of feeding. My friends, you don't place live eggs under dead hens. Whenever I find an individual who tells me, look, this is what God has led me to do, I can't quarrel with that. All I say is, look, you better get some good intake of the scriptures. You got some tapes. You got some books. You in a Bible class someplace where you're getting fed and nourished and growing. It's tragic to find a person who's been in faith 10, 15, 20 years and the person still doesn't know the name of the game, still doesn't know who's on first. I said to a group of businessmen some time ago, man, if you didn't know any more about your business or profession after the same number of years of exposure that you know about the Word of God, what would happen? One guy in the front just blurted out, they'd ship me. I said, thank you, sir, for your honesty. I mentioned yesterday you cannot communicate out of a vacuum. You cannot impart what you do not possess. And I find the people who have the greatest ministry are people who are committed to a process of learning. They're constantly taking it in, not only through others, more importantly, by themselves. And that's why I was so glad that Ted mentioned again, and I would like to underscore it one more time. You might get the message. That daily walk could mean a process of revolutionizing your life. I don't know how many laymen have said to me, man, I'm chowing on that thing. Just think. One guy said to me, for the first time in my Christian life, 29 years in faith, I actually read through the entire scriptures. Because, you see, it's a disciplined approach. And furthermore, he said, I get so turned on that I just study the thing for myself. And the guy's growing like you wouldn't believe. And that's why God has given him an even larger ministry. But the second thing that is equally important is not only do you need to know the truth if you're going to handle it correctly, you need to live it. And a lot of us are like poor photographs. We're overexposed and we're underdeveloped. 
We know a lot of biblical facts, but so little of that has really transformed our experience. Do you have an obsession to live the truth of God? I mentioned to you I'm working with the Cowboys last Wednesday our leading columnist in the Dallas Morning News wrote an article about one of our Christian players on the team. And I have seldom seen a front page article on the sports page that packs such a wallop for Jesus Christ. I happened to be out the field the other day and I ran into this guy and I said, hey, I'd just like you to know I really appreciate that article you wrote. Oh, he says, man, it's so easy to write something significant about a significant person. This past year, we saw two players come to Christ, and both of them will tell you it was because of the quality of life, and in particular, the marriage of this player. See, I don't think most of us have any idea. We went out at a meeting last night, had some tremendous fellowship, got on an elevator, two people coming up, a husband and a wife, I take it, man and a woman at least, in the elevator, partially under the influence, but coherent enough to talk, watching those on the outside, five or six Christian couples enjoying life. And we walk into the thing, and the first thing is they say, you know, I'll bet you people really enjoy each other. How's that grab you? See, I often ask myself, you know, is it possible that we can come to a convention like this and bypass the choicest opportunities to represent Jesus Christ? Talked to a man some time ago on a steamship line. I said, what kind of audiences do you enjoy? He says, almost anyone, but the one I can't stand is the Christian cruises. They just drive me up the wall. I said, you mean because of the liquor? He said, oh, no, that's the refreshing part. But because of the obnoxiousness of many of the patrons. So demanding. I saw a preacher recently at a conference go through the ceiling at my table. I was crawling underneath the table because the gal bought him peas instead of beans. And after she took off, I said to him, friend, I'd like to rebuke you as an elder. As far as I am concerned, I couldn't listen to a blessed word you said from here on out unless you apologize to that gal. You know, that took the greatest grace. It took him two days to screw up enough courage to come back and say to that gal, hey, I'm sorry. See, it's so easy to have all of your doctrine lined up and just wipe the whole thing out by an attitude, by thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think, by forgetting that you are a representative of Jesus Christ. And I suspect, I know with many of you whom I know very, very well, 
that the greatest impact some of you have made is not that you opened your mouth. You do that. But it's because when you open your mouth, you've got something behind it to authenticate the message. I've often said to a person, my friend, if you don't have your act together, i got news for you. Keep your mouth shut. Just open it to plead to the Father to make you like his son. And when he starts to go to work in that den, be sure to tell somebody what Jesus Christ did. And that's the only explanation you will say for the change in my life. The last thing I want you to see is that I think correctly handling the Word of God also involves sharing it. Taking every opportunity, and that's what some of you have, I just drool with envy for some of you. Seriously. Just think where you work. Just think the circles that you penetrate. Most of you reach people that the average preacher couldn't touch with a 40-foot pole, and you brush shoulders with them every day. You see, it's a question of capitalizing on your sphere of influence. Dave Rowe, now playing with Baltimore, one time with Oakland, George Beeler, has also been traded, but was playing at the time, came to that Super Bowl in which Oakland won. The night before the game, they were in their room praying. Two believers, they roam together, they read the word, they pray every day. And they read that passage that God would give us an opportunity and that we would be bold to speak. So Dave said to George, hey, George, wouldn't it be fantastic if uh, we won a Super Bowl tomorrow and one of these reporters came in and asked you or asked me a question and we'd have an opportunity to share our faith? And George said, well, why don't we pray about that? So they got down and they prayed about it. Well, the next day they were playing Minnesota. It was a disaster game. Most people tuned out long before the end of the Super Bowl. But a few diehards like me hung in. And if you did, on CBS, you saw a very interesting scene. Because the reporters came in, they only interviewed two guys, one of whom was Dave Rowe. And the reporter said, hey, Dave, I'll bet this is the most exciting day in your life. And Dave said, no, as a matter of fact, it really isn't. And the guy fell right into the trap. He said, it isn't. What would you say is the most significant day in your life? You heard the clearest testimony for Jesus Christ you will ever hear on CBS. Now, it's perfectly obvious looking around the room. Most of you don't play for the NFL. <laughs> And that's reasonable to conclude the more I look. See, that's the miss, the whole point. We got the NFL covered for your information. We had 125 players in Dallas this past year at our professional conference. I have seldom seen a group of tigers 
who are so committed to Jesus Christ, studying the Word of God, Gene and I, having the privilege of ministering to them, just like blotters taking it up. Since then, I've spoken to, I suppose, seven or eight of these clubs. And in every one, we got a clear-cut witness for Jesus Christ, and they're penetrating it. You don't play in their league, so you're not responsible for that. But God has given you a sphere of influence. And that's where he wants you to share the word. First of all, that has transformed your own life. And then, that's so exciting, you want to share with others. My favorite pastime is watching surgery. Every time I get an opportunity, I'm in an operating room. And I have a number of friends who are incredibly gifted with a knife, one of whom is a brain surgeon. Some time ago, I watched him operate on a man who, if he was successful, could have a high degree of normalcy the rest of his life. If not, he would be a vegetable from that day on. And I watched him perform that delicate surgery, and I was fascinated by one thing, that little scalpel. And after we finished the surgery, he said, okay, Holly, let's clean up. I said, Doc, can I stay here for just a few minutes? He said, certainly. Meet me down in the doctor's room. They wheeled the patient out. I said to the nurse, do you mind? If I handle these, she said, you can handle anything you want now. And I picked up that piece of steel and I put it in my hand and I thought, just an inert piece of steel. In my hand, butchery. In the hands of my friend, life. And as I put it back on that tray, I said, Oh, God, make me a scalpel in your hands to accomplish your purpose. Phillips Brooks prayed it. Do not pray for easier lives. Pray to be stronger men. Do not ask for powers equal to your task. Ask for tasks equal to your power. Then the living of your life will be no miracle, but you will be a miracle. Every day people will wonder at the grace of God at work in you. Father, how wonderful to have spent these days with you around your word with these, our choice friends. And we thank you that, as always, you have been attempting to communicate with us. We pray that that which we have heard will become a part of the life that we live. 
I want to thank you for these, my brothers and sisters in Christ, for the overwhelming motivation they provide for me, and I am sure for many others who look to them for leadership, who look to them for models, who look to them for wisdom and counsel and direction, and for the word of life. And I pray that as we leave this convention, we may leave with a fresh realization of your power upon us and of your willingness to use us. Help us never to recover from the fact that you handpicked us to be your representatives to this generation. Long been convinced you could have used better means. The miracle is you chose us. Make us good stewards. We thank you, believingly, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.